right now, if you've a huge database of location data or like healthcare data or something, it's super unethical for you to just sell that and share that with third-party services. But in a world where there's infrastructure that lets companies safely and securely process each other's data, where you don't have to worry about the risk of data going missing and everybody can opt in, it doesn't take much imagination to imagine how that could um, open up a huge a huge bunch more of uh, yeah just opportunity for companies that haven't even thought about this stuff before. Happy Friday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. You know we like to mix it up here at Not Boring Founders, so today we're going to try something new. Yesterday, I wrote a piece uh, on a company called Evervault called Evervault Encrypt Everything. Evervault is a super cool kind of developer infrastructure company that, like Stripe, makes it easy to accept payments or Twilio makes it easy to send text messages. Evervault makes it easy to encrypt your website so that when people send data to you in a form, it never even touches your database before it gets encrypted and then it gets decrypted on the way out and you can do all sorts of calculations on it in a private security cage. It's a really cool company. We'll get into it now. Shane Curran is the 22-year-old founder and CEO of Evervault. And as I was talking to him about the piece, I figured why not turn the microphone on and ask any kind of final questions that I had and, and kind of go deeper on what they're building now that I had a little more familiarity with the company. Uh, and so we decided to just record a, a kind of companion podcast to the piece that I was writing. So hopefully you like this format. Let us know on Twitter at PackEM or at NotBoringCo if you like this format. And from now on, when we do sponsor deep dives, we'll also throw an interview with founder in it if you like it. Before we get to that conversation with Shane, though, a word from the presenting sponsor of all of season two of Not Boring Founders. That is right, ladies and gentlemen, FTX US. FTX should be familiar at this point. One, because we know you don't miss an episode of Not Boring Founders, but two, because FTX is a giant in crypto. FTX is the fastest company ever to reach a $32 billion valuation. FTX US, the US subsidiary, is independently worth $8 billion. And FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is a living legend, a self-made 29-year-old multi-multi-billionaire who plans to give it all away one day. FTX has gotten so big so fast because it's really good at building crypto products. If there's something that you want to do in crypto, chances are FTX is a product for you. It's the exchange and derivatives platforms that the professionals use, one of the largest exchanges in the US, and the maker of the FTX app. The FTX app is the most complete app in crypto. It allows users like you and me to buy crypto like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, and Doge, and even NFTs with no fees. Users can use a crypto debit card, track their entire crypto portfolio, and even get important news updates. It's also cheaper than any other cryptocurrency exchange with no fixed minimum fees on transactions, no ACH or transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. FTX is smart. It knows that if it wants to win, offering the best product for the cheapest is a good way to do that. But don't take my word for it. Go check it out yourself. Go to either the link in the show notes and just click that, sign up, and you'll be good to go. You'll get $10 when you trade your first coin, or you can go to the app store of your choice Download the FTX app and enter code NOTBORING, all one word, to get a free coin when you trade your first $10. Thank you to FTX US for sponsoring Not Boring Founders and making conversations like today's with Evervault CEO Shane Curran possible. I'm here with Shane Curran, the founder and CEO of Evervault. Shane, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Packy. So I want to start with the question that, that I always like to start with here, which is what the world looks like in 10 years if Everbald is just wildly successful? This is an exercise we're going through ourselves at the moment. I think it's actually pretty simple. Uh, it's just that data breaches are a thing of the past. 
uh, that any data that does get breached on the internet in general is encrypted, regardless of whether that's using Evervault or not. Hopefully it is using Evervault, but we just may want to make it so easy for companies to avoid data breaches through encryption that we just don't have to talk about them. And it's no longer a, a beat that reporters are writing about over time. So what does Evervault do today? And then what do you think those next 10 years look like to get you there? Evervault is an encryption infrastructure company. What that means in practice in the short term is that uh, we build tools for software developers who are collecting sensitive data from their users. So things like credit card numbers, healthcare data, financial data, and PII, and so on. We give developers the tools so that uh, when they're collecting the data from their users, uh, it gets encrypted by Evervault before it hits their infrastructure. So no matter how badly they write code, how malicious their software engineering team might be, uh, or if they just on a whim decide to post their database on a billboard in Times Square, the only information that they have is encrypted and Evervault manages the keys. So the first product that we've launched to make this possible is Relay. You can think of Relay kind of like a CDN that does encryption uh, in its essence. And so the more companies that put Relay in front of their APIs, uh, the more value we can provide to customers beyond just encryption as well, like being able to alert you, alert you if one of your users is doing something fraudulent, making DDoS prevention, botnet prevention, and so on really easy. But uh, the core focus for us is encryption. And over time, we really want to expand to making Relay a security gateway for companies that are building on the internet. The second piece that we have is cages. Um, and cages is super simple. It's basically if you've collected encrypted data using Evervault, but you still want to process it using code that you've written, uh, this is sort of historically the biggest pain with encryption is that it has a decrypt function. And obviously that's sort of an intuitive system, but it, what, what a lot of companies want is they want to be able to collect encrypted data, never decrypt it, but still do things with it. So whether that's passing it to a third party uh, or processing it using code that they write themselves, uh, Cages is our product for that. So you can just uh, write in a programming language of your choice, deploy to Evervault. Uh, we work with AWS and their Nitro Enclaves product to make this super robust and uh, scalable and easy to use and all these other things that customers are looking for. But you just send a request with the encrypted data with the code already deployed to us. And we just let you process the encrypted data. For someone who's not technical like me, how, can you walk me through a little more like how a piece of data goes from me typing it into a field into being encrypted, into a company processing it, like what the life cycle of a piece of data that's being used by a company is? Yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously a, it's a tricky thing for a technologist to describe things like this verbally, but we tend to drive this diagram, which consists of three parts. So you have a front end, which you can think of as like a mobile app, a web app, uh, or maybe even a third party customer if you're an API company. You have a back end, which is the code that you're running in your servers that's doing all the business logic where um, you're passing the data onto third parties or, or BI tooling and so on. Uh, and then the third part is any sort of third party services that you're using to provide service to your customers. So uh, you know, things like payment gateways, SMS gateways, uh, you know, databases of service, basically any company that a company might need to share data with as a sort of core component of their product in general. But let's take the example of uh, an online checkout form. I guess in a pre-Stripe era, the way this would have worked is a company would have created a form which collects all the data that you need to uh, you know, deliver a t-shirt to a customer. Uh, so you're going to take their name, their address, uh, their credit card number, CVV, expiry date, and so on. Uh, that gets typed in by the user in their web browser. Um, the web browser sends a request to the backend that I described, which could be written in one of many programming languages, but it's just sent over the internet. Like sure, it might use uh, TLS or the, you know, the green padlock in the top left that most of us are familiar with, but that's not really that helpful. All that stops is somebody in the middle sort of sniffing the request, trying to get the credit card numbers and then leak them. But once it hits the customer's backend, it's in plain text again. So it becomes entirely the responsibility of a software engineer at this online t-shirt store to make sure that the sensitive data is always kept safe. The sad reality is that's not the case. 
pretty much all the time, it's never intentional, but security is just one of these things that's not really taught to developers as part of their either formal or informal education. They go to college, they learn how to write performant code, uh, but they never learn how to write code that never leaks data. This is starting to change a little bit, but that general trend is something that we're trying to stop where, um, you know, like I, I was just annoyed that as a developer, I could charge a credit card in a couple of seconds using Stripe. I could send an SMS in a couple of seconds using Twilio, but encrypting data still took like reading Stack Overflow for months, reading academic papers, having people tell you that if you don't understand it, you shouldn't use it. And Evervault exists to stop all of that. That's what we're working towards. And so you, you taught yourself encryption. You told me that you took an academic interest in encryption when you were like 11 or younger. How do you get into it in the first place? It's pretty difficult. Maybe this is just sort of like Irish guilt in me or something. But the reason why I was most, where I became interested in encryption is that I built this SaaS service for libraries, mostly in schools, to keep track of all of the books that they had, as well as all the students that were in the school, every book they had ever read. And this was obviously like pretty sensitive data, being able to see you know, what a kindergartner is reading, what their like parents' contact details are, and so on. Um, you know, that's that's sensitive data. And I was just a kid, you know. I put together the software and didn't really know how security worked. I could just go into the database and you know, it was really interesting to me to see what the breakdown of different schools was and, and so on. But I was trying to figure out like how I can stop that happening because like, sure, I wasn't a great developer, but I'm, I'm sure that at other companies, large and small, people were facing the exact same things and they were just pretending that security wasn't really an issue because it wasn't really that cool back in 2011, 2012. At that point, it was basically... The internet itself was still kind of in its infancy. Like there was a lot of consumer social stuff happening, but B2B SaaS was still very nascent. Like you just had you know, companies like MailChimp and so on had become kind of successful and Stripe had launched and a couple of other things, but it wasn't as robust and well-tooled as it was, uh, as, as it is today. Uh, so yeah, just try to figure out how I could use technology to keep the data safe. It was around the same time as a conversation was starting to happen in sort of privacy land where GDPR, uh, CCPA, and all these other things were coming to fruition. So people were at least talking about it. But as somebody who was writing code day to day, I wasn't really interested in using regulation to solve all of these problems because I saw them as pure technology problems that required a technology solution. Although the intention is the same with uh, things like privacy regulations, I think uh, solving it with code is a lot easier and a lot more practical. So um, yeah, stumbled upon encryption and then discovered that there wasn't the classic one or two line of code integration to just encrypt data in a safe way. You're still responsible for managing your keys, picking the right algorithms, rotating them. And, and then the data itself still hit your code in plain text, which is obviously a huge deal. So I was just dreaming about what would the ideal setup look like. And it's basically a system that doesn't give you access to the keys, but encrypts the data for you. It encrypts the data before it hits your infrastructure really easy to get up and running with, solves a bunch of the compliance concerns that a lot of companies have with things like PCI DSS, uh, HIPAA, GDPR, and so on. Um, and yeah, just pretty fun to use for your average developer. Which or you're not fun. average. I, I just went on Replit last night and was playing around with it and built my own relay and encrypted my phone number. So it, it was actually super simple. And yeah, it shows up as opposed to my 10-digit phone number as a string of complete gobbledygook and that nobody could even if they got into my computer, could do anything with. What are people doing today? Like, obviously, you know, people are not just like you at 12 years old. They have this like database, plain text stuff. Maybe they're using Stripe and I'm sure there's some encryption that happens there. What's kind of the default for like a good but not great security posture for a company? 
Uh, well, firstly, I'm glad you've enjoyed playing with the product. I think one thing that a lot of developer tool companies tend to neglect is that most software developers or people who are writing code don't exist yet. So you've got to really catch people as they're you know, picking up the, the skills themselves. So that's one thing that we're trying to take on board. To your question about what people do today, the truthful answer is just enough. So security in general has been one of these things that's very driven by compliance, especially as you know companies are trying to sell to other larger companies or banks or financial institutions or whatever, um, the security requirements really get driven by what a large company is going to want from their vendors. So things like ISO compliance, um, just to make sure that you have general good practice business systems, I guess recently things like privacy compliance and so on. But uh, it's only in the past couple of years that the concerns around preventing breaches has come into play because data breaches, like historically, were not really a huge deal. Like basically every site got hacked. And there was just pay spin after pay spin of credentials on the internet. But this is starting to become like a core differentiator for two sort of competing products. Like if you're thinking about buying, I don't know, an authentication product or something, and I'll intentionally leave names out here. If you're going with one vendor that um, has a reported breach in the last you know month, or if you have another vendor that has a squeaky clean record, like for the most part, all of the things being equal, it's sort of an obvious choice. But because security in general has been driven by the bare minimum effect, uh, a lot of the time, people don't really think proactively about it in the same way that they think about product. So product teams are generally a lot more innovative and they're thinking about like how, how to build a dream product that's going to provide the ideal experience for a customer. But with security, it's basically you've security engineers who have the best intentions because they themselves want to make sure that the system itself is secure, but they're basically reporting to a CISO who's under pressure from like a CFO or like a head of sales or something like that, who's basically saying like, make sure we don't get hacked and, you know, I just want you to help us win these deals all the time. So I'm going to drag you into a customer call at the last stages just to make sure that they trust us and so on. Um, and that means that security in general is conflated with making sure that you do basic basic things like encryption at rest, uh, using TLS and really primitive things that a local kind of mom and pop store can now do. Um, but larger companies haven't really gone much further beyond what a small business on the internet is doing. And like generally they should be worlds apart and that the bigger business should be doing something way better up until very recently that hasn't been the case what's the difference between encryption at rest and field level encryption there's two parts really the first is where the keys are so if you use encryption at rest if you're using some sort of managed database service in aws or whatever if you click the encryption at rest button all that means is that before the data itself gets stored to a, a hard drive or i guess these days in an ssd the entire database itself gets encrypted and then when you want to read from it it gets decrypted and then it queries it that way so like your code is still handling sensitive data in plain text your database is still handling sensitive data in plain text and the key itself still exists in your infrastructure as a as an aside and this is sort of personal speculation but i've actually never seen any code on the internet for encryption at rest so i'm not even sure it exists but i've definitely <laughs> seen the checkboxes in in products if anybody has any insight into how this is actually done i would love to learn on a personal level because i'm pretty skeptical Wait, that's so, that's a big conspiracy theory you're dropping on us now. So this is all just people with fake toggles on the internet pretending to encrypt your data. Maybe. I mean, yeah, I like uh I, I don't wanna I, I don't wanna go too extreme, but it's certainly a possibility. Assuming that they're telling the truth and they actually are encrypting it, I, I think I, I can be a good foil here because I'm pretty dumb. Essentially, if I had the key, I could decrypt the database and then all of a sudden with that one key, it's decrypted and everything is wide open and, and I can go through every field. Whereas if it's field level encrypted, what happens then? Yeah. So e even if you do use encryption at rest and it's sort of implemented as expected, um, 
you don't even have access to the key to do the decryption. So it's basically you connect to your database and then somehow magically under the hood, everything gets encrypted and decrypted before it gets stored to disk. You just aren't aware of the encryption at all. It just sort of happens and has abstracted away from you. With field level encryption, and there's some sort of database products that are integrating this now, it's basically uh, the key exists in the source code that is actually querying the database itself. So with MongoDB, you would store, uh, let's say an SSN or something in the database before it leaves your source code, it gets encrypted using a key that you manage. You store it in MongoDB, and then every time you want to query it, you pull it out, and then it gets decrypted once it gets back to your source code. So that's kind of like the current, I'm going to call it cutting edge because it's it's sort of like the best that we have, but it's definitely not revelatory. It's pretty you know, simple technology. What Evervault does is it moves the key even closer to the user. So before the source code itself that's processing the sensitive data gets access to it, it's already been encrypted by Evervault on our infrastructure we don't give you the key. So all you get is encrypted data. You can do whatever you want with it. Like I said earlier on, just post it wherever you want. And like, obviously you should still have good software development practices, but if hypothetically you didn't, it wouldn't actually be a huge deal because the data can't be decrypted unless you're running it in a cage, which you've already written uh, code for and intentionally designed, or you're passing it to a trusted third party and we sort of verify that they're um, secure and audit them and so on. So it's really hard to kind of screw that up. And if you do, you just rotate the keys and then uh, all the sensitive data can't be processed because, yeah, we, we don't give you access to the key to decrypt it. What's yeah. to stop you then? So if we're moving the trust to Evervault, what's to stop Shane, who just has access to the Evervault database, from going in and, and taking all the data? So the, the fundamental design distinction that we made, and this was like very intentional from day one, is that uh, Evervault stores keys but not encrypted data, and that our customers store encrypted data but not keys. So if data was to go missing, both Evervault and our customers would need to simultaneously be breached, although theoretically possible is exponentially exponentially less likely than one or the other being breached, especially you know a customer that's looking to use off-the-shelf security products where they probably don't have the in-house resource to think about this stuff themselves. The pushback we get on that is generally you know, for the one field or two fields that are always sort of flowing through Evervault's infrastructure, how do we make sure that we don't decrypt them? That's where uh, we partnered with AWS on uh, a new product that they have called Nitro Enclaves, where basically you can write source code, deploy it in an environment, and then Amazon will attest to uh, the integrity of the source code that you're running to make sure that it hasn't been tampered with. It matches the source code that your engineering team have already reviewed and deployed uh, as part of a standard um, CICD pipeline or, or pull review process. So it's basically impossible for somebody to go in, change the source code at runtime, and then just leak the information out to a third-party server. We integrate very deeply with that and expose a lot of the functionality that uh, Nitro Enclaves provides to us, to our customers as well. What's the right go-to-market to get this in as many uh, hands and as many websites as possible? When we first started out, we thought it would be companies that were that didn't really care about security, but like kind of needed security because they wanted to sell to these customers and they didn't really know what they were doing. So they just wanted to use uh, an off-the-shelf product that they could point to when a customer asks them about their security posture. They just say like, oh yeah, we use Evervault for all that stuff. It's all secure. And, and that has actually uh, come true to a certain extent, especially with smaller customers who who kind of need all the social proof and, and social capital that they need to, or that is possible for them to actually get the deal done. But increasingly, we're seeing companies that already care about security, which are generally larger. Uh, these are sometimes you know banks and financial institutions dealing with things like credit card numbers who care about PCI compliance. They come to us because you know they've come across things like Nitro Enclaves and so on, and they're great products, but the developer investment to actually get up and running with them and sort of build their own infrastructure to run it in production and deploy it and uh, you know change the source code and so on is like pretty arduous for them. So it's kind of like the lowest lift version 
of getting access to the best possible encryption and security tech that, that you can basically have. Um, and so that's kind of led us to have the same product, but so we're two separate go-to-markets. The first is sort of your classic outbound sales, you know, selling to these banks and so on that uh, we can help get PTI compliant in basically a few hours as opposed to uh, many months and hundreds of thousands of dollars or, or millions of dollars of an investment. Then on the other hand, we have this sort of uh, self-serve tailwind as well of uh, companies that sign up. They want to use us to build smart contracts or uh, do key management or transaction signing for crypto products, as well as just sort of small companies that you know, care about the compliance stuff, but they just don't want to talk to a sales rep, which is a surprisingly large amount of the yeah. world. Um, you know, and I, I get why. But those are the two things. But the beauty of being an infrastructure product that isn't super prescriptive about uh, use cases and like what you should actually use the product for. And because we integrate pretty kind of far down the stack, as you saw, you just you get a domain name and just write your traffic that way. We don't have to change the product at all for these different use cases. Customers from yeah, small startups working in crypto or large banks who care about compliance can all sign up. They all use the same dashboard. And they can get up and running in the exact same way, which is the dream really from a product perspective is that we don't have to be prescriptive, which yeah, is, is a lot of fun for us. You mentioned crypto there. What are people using EverVault for in crypto right now? Because I mean, the whole thing runs on, on public key cryptography and where's their place for a company like EverVault? So the, the biggest use case is definitely transaction signing, where you can think of a cage as almost like a smart contract. And there's sort of an accidental byproduct that we didn't intend on happening, but Basically, every team in Evervault gets assigned a public-private key pair, and it turns out that the uh, elliptic curve that we picked for the key pair to be generated on is a curve called uh, SECP 256K1, which uh, is exactly the same curve as Bitcoin uses. Huh. Accidentally, we realized that every single team in Evervault is actually a Bitcoin wallet, um, and then we were kind of playing around, and it turns out you can like send money between teams and use cages to sign the transactions themselves. Uh, but that was totally unintentional, which is... Uh, which is obviously a, a great way of coming across this stuff. Um, it's just a conversation that we were having with somebody and they were like, oh, so it, it's kind of like a Bitcoin wallet. And then we were all confused and thought about it for a bit and then realized that, oh yeah, it is. We should probably kind of position the product that way as well. But yeah, definitely uh, transaction signing is, is the big one. I, I Also just things like cold storage for keys, people who are building kind of wallet products or people who are doing kind of custodial services. They're not a customer of ours. But if you think of a business like Coinbase, obviously they're having to manage hundreds of thousands or probably millions or even billions of keys to uh, certain wallets. They want to store them in their infrastructure, but they still need to access them to sign the transactions to move money around. And that's really difficult to do securely unless you're either building your own infrastructure in-house, which is what a lot of these large companies tend to do. But for your sort of smaller businesses who um, need access to crypto wallets all the time, want to sign the transactions, but don't want to take on the risk of managing the keys, then EverVault's a great choice. We also work with certain customers sometimes on actually taking on financial liability as well for those use cases. So if you're an exchange or if you're a, a, you know, a crypto bank or something who has whatever, $100 million AUM, uh, we kind of work with both those customers and then also cyber insurance providers to like basically cover their liability so that EverVault is basically a a win-win where you know we'll provide the security, but even if uh, in the extremely unlikely event that something does go missing, we're still going to get backed up by um, both ourselves and a large old-school insurance company. There's this move on the healthcare side of things to, to value-based care, and essentially whoever's providing the care takes the risk, gets the upside if things go well. Do you become a cyber insurance company at some point? If you believe in the product enough, does it make sense to have the two live under the same roof? I definitely see a world where that makes sense. I guess like the, there's two parts of being an insurance company. There's sort of the financial rigor of actually being able to issue policies yourself and cover the losses. 
But every insurance company is fundamentally built on trust. And the beauty of starting out as a technology company is building a product is that we can build trust with customers purely because of the product and the brand that, we, that we're sort of portraying. What started to happen a lot of the time is customers come to us and they just want to use Evervault so that they can, uh, you know, they can tell their customers that they use Evervault. And this is like a really great thing that we're seeing in general. But if Evervault becomes kind of the gold standard in, I guess, security practice within companies or even within startups, then yeah, insurance is sort of an obvious next move. But uh, yeah, obviously building an insurance company is something totally different to building an encryption company. It's something we'd, we'd like to avoid if at all possible. Makes that makes sense. So the way that I picture Evervault in my head is like, and I think you probably have a graphic somewhere in your docs that that does this, but the encryption engine at at the base, and on top of it you have relay, on top of it you have cages, and now you're spinning up. You have twelve, eighteen, twenty four, which is for people to manage their seed phrases, right? On uh, for for their uh, crypto wallets. Is that the way that you think about it? Like that you've built this infrastructure, and now both you and your customers can build things on top of it. Or what do you do from here? As part of our onboarding, every time somebody joins the company uh, on a whiteboard, I drop pretty much that exact diagram where you've got E3 or encryption engine at the bottom, uh, relay cages on top. And then over time, we basically want to move sort of further up the stack. Classically in sort of SaaS or just kind of like business to business software companies, you focus on one really narrow thing and build a product there and sort of expand outwards. But because of what we've done, like as an infrastructure company, it makes sense for us to kind of move further up the stack. And 1218.24, as one example, was really an experiment for us on the developer relations side where um, because we have such a generic product, like in a positive sense, one of the things that we, or one of the challenges that we face from a marketing perspective is we kind of have to inspire developers about what they can build with Evervault. Like we don't want to just say like, you can use Relay to achieve PCI compliance because although that's true, we want a developer or like a high school kid who's learning how to program to come onto the website and and realize that like, oh, I could use Evervault to integrate this prediction market with this smart contract that I'm working on or something like that. Um, and so 1218.24 was just uh, sort of a project for us to show that Evervault can be used for these things. You're, you're going to start to see a lot more of that from us as well over time. It's, it's core to um, where we want to be going as a business, uh, which is, yeah, it's exciting. That's one of my favorite things about infrastructure companies and you nailed it is like what it allows people to do that they otherwise couldn't. I've talked to a few smart people in crypto who think that kind of privacy is the next big thing that's going to happen. And not because people care enough about privacy to do anything. I think that's one of my favorite parts about Evervault is that you make it so simple that you don't really have to like really, really, really care. But because privacy will enable you to do things that you otherwise could not have built, like what are some of those things that you think people can build because Evervault exists that they otherwise wouldn't have? Firstly, on the privacy point, the reason why there hasn't been like a, a, a sort of runaway success in privacy companies just yet. And although there's been some reasonable successes, it's because they're trying to convince companies who do basically nothing in privacy right now to go to the ideal solution. But like what you really need to do is get a company who like kind of cares about security and privacy and so on to just go towards doing something. And then once they build up trust with a company to do that small thing, then over time it becomes a lot more expansive. But it means that you naturally have to structure a company that's working in those kind of projects like Evervault to be much more long-term focused. So what Evervault allows companies to do that they normally can't do is this sort of bridge between a trustless world and a traditional, like, you know, I don't, I don't want to say traditional, but sort of the, the sort of status quo web two world where you have this idea for a really cool project or really cool technology that you could work on, but your customers just aren't going to trust you to either give you their like bank credentials or, or whatever. And you see this uh, quite a lot with companies. Like if you look at Plaid, although they've been you know massively successful, the early days were kind of plagued with 
trust issues and, and sort of people just being scared of giving a third party service their banking credentials. And like, I've been deeply impressed by their ability to sort of overcome that just through like good messaging and branding and so on. Not everybody has that luxury. So um, any technology that somebody wants to build where um, you need to convince your users that they should trust you to take a piece of highly sensitive data uh, is something that traditionally has been very difficult to do, but with Evervault is, is pretty easy to do. But over time, we see a bunch more things that we're looking at from a product perspective that um, basically open up entirely new business lines within companies that have large volumes of sensitive data. Because you know, right now, if you have a huge database of location data or like healthcare data or something, it's super unethical for you to just sell that and share that with third-party services. But in a world where there's infrastructure that lets companies safely and securely process each other's data, where you don't have to worry about the risk of data going missing and everybody can opt in, it doesn't take much imagination to imagine how that could um, open up a huge, a huge bunch more of, uh, yeah, just opportunity for companies that haven't even thought about this stuff before. It's difficult because there's no job title for this sort of business within a company. I think it just needs to be abstracted away by by software and yeah, probably by a company like Evervault. There's that long-term horizon thing, which is another Amazon Stripe type thing where like, if you have the longest view in the room, you can do things that other people wouldn't or can't. How do you balance the day-to-day of shipping products, selling clients, doing all of those types of things with that really long-term view? What do you juggle in your head to, to make those two things happen at the same time? I think a lot of people probably say this, but that is the single hardest thing. A lot of other things in a company are, are pretty hard hiring people and or you're hiring great people, building high-performing teams and so on. But at least for me, because like when I first set out and started Evervault, I was only really thinking about kind of the, the one year and the 10 year or the one year and like the 30 year. Years like two through nine were just very blurry. Once you hire a team and things are kind of going, you have to figure out like, okay, cool. You know, this year has gone great. Like, what are we going to do next year? And I think breaking that down a lot more has been pretty painful obviously necessary, but but definitely painful. I think uh, we got lucky in that Relay, although it's sort of designed to be a very long-term product with a long-term goal, has a couple of like really quick win use cases in, in sort of like the PCI compliance space where customers came to us and said like, does this remove us from P- scope for PCI compliance? And initially, like we had no idea. We kind of did a bit of Googling and then it turns out that the answer was yes. So you know, we hired somebody to run the compliance uh, business for us and um, you know, that sort of took off. So it means that you kind of start to build momentum in isolation via very high performing, like interesting business. But once you have that, because it's an infrastructure product and you don't have to do too much engineering work, you can basically just always work in the long term. The short term can kind of be patched in with basically just go to market and um, kind of the solutions engineering side of things, because we haven't done too much, if any, uh, product customization work for these use cases. It's just basically how do customers integrate with this kind of core platform that we've built, which is, um, yeah, which is a, a nice byproduct of being an infrastructure company, like you mentioned. How do you think about the moats in the business? Are there different edge cases you saw as in, you know, the, the Stripe case or in Plaid's case, you integrate with enough banks that it's hard to rip you out. Like what are the things that, that you're building up from that infrastructure spot to, to build moats around the business? Personally, it's like, it's not something that I've ever spent too much time on because I think once you start as a company, once you start designing your moats, you're kind of like already throwing in the towel on what your future product roadmap will look like. But I think for us, the core thing is just having such a cohesive set of products and not just products where, um, you know, data that you encrypt with Relay can be processed with cages, can be shared with third parties or uh, insured or whatever uh, through Evervault. I'm hesitant to sort of draw comparisons between us and sort of payment companies. But if you've like a payment token for a credit card number, you can use it across a bunch of different products within a company like Stripe or Adyen or whatever, where you can take a payment token and 
use it to charge a card once or create a subscription or, or use some sort of like third-party payout service. And I think the same is true of encrypted data, except with even more utility because it's not just payments. It's like the ability to basically build any software you want with data that you historically didn't have. The core things that we focus on are just great developer experience, super reliable infrastructure, and affordable prices. And I think if you just do those three things, then you don't really need to worry about Moat too much. Everything else is a byproduct of that. There's a lot of trust that people put on Evervault. Maybe that keeps you up at night. Maybe you're so confident in the math that it doesn't. What are the things that do keep you up at night about the business? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely it's definitely trust because most companies can afford to have like one security incident and kind of recover from it. Like we basically can't and we've bet the entire company on it. Uh, so it's something you just really have to drill home every day. But at the same time, like I think there's just a lot of conscious engineering decisions that you can make to de-risk that massively. And just that fundamental design consideration I mentioned where Evervault doesn't store encrypted data, that makes me feel a whole lot better because if somebody got into all of our production infrastructure, there's really not much there for them to get. They might be able to see logs maybe or, or something like that, but it's it's not that exciting. The, the most difficult thing is just sort of, it's, it would be very easy for us to get pigeonholed into what we're doing today. Evervault, like, as I said, all of these are sort of independently interesting businesses, but as a company, it all only really comes together like in years like nine and 10 or whatever, when you have all of these really sort of cohesive, comprehensive products that finally kind of snap together like a, you know, a Lego building or something, and then it just looks great. Right now we have sort of one or two rooms in the in the Lego house, but building the whole thing and having it all come together is still a long time away. And I think just keeping everybody aligned around that is, yeah, is one of my biggest challenges as a CEO. I'm sure if you had a picture of this Lego house in your head in the beginning, and then you're building and like some things are probably the same and some things are totally different. How much does that Lego house right now look like the foundational version of that in the future that you thought it was going to be in the beginning and how much changes in the interim? Structurally, I think everything from a product perspective is more or less the same. Like sometimes I look back on um, you know, our, our uh, seed round pitch deck and look at how the product was positioned and it's basically the exact same. Our seed deck, I think, is actually publicly available on the internet on like Business Insider or something. So if people want to take a look at that, you'll see that there is actually a lot of similarity there. The biggest thing that um, at least I got not wrong, but just totally ignored was the importance of basically just positioning. So it's kind of like, here's this really cool technology that we know everybody needs, but like who and which companies need it and why. Um, that's something that we've historically neglected quite a lot. And that's sort of uh, to date held us back, but these are all kind of solvable things. It's one of the things that we're working through right now. And so the, the PCI compliance thing, for example, was just more or less an accident that kind of came good because it would have been very easy for us to just kind of keep building in isolation as more or less an academic product, but or a- academic project. But now we have this sort of pretty compelling product for one or two use cases. It's just about finding the next 10 and then sort of expanding the product beyond that. That's a long way of saying pretty close, which um, <laughs> obviously makes you, makes you feel pretty, pretty good about, well, it, not that it makes you feel good about yourself, but it makes you feel a little bit less crazy than you did like two or three years ago. You just keep, keep de-risking it. Is there like another approach to the world that you always wonder if you should have taken or are you pretty confident that this is the approach like would somebody else who's like super 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 smart cutting edge but on like a totally different path have something to say about the the approach that you're taking do you mean specifically within the encryption security space or just everything encryption security space is there a competing approach that like if this is the approach that wins and evervault is like the clear choice but there's also this like really novel cool new thing that might actually win. And then Evervault's technology is not cutting edge. When I first started working in Evervault, it was around 2017. This is like roughly around the same time as sort of like peak uh, ICO craze. And I think you know, Filecoin had raised a bunch of money in their ICO. This was the hot thing. Then it kind of died down for a couple of years until 
I'm trying to remember even when, but pretty recently, like in the last 18 months, I guess things just kind of took off again with probably COVID and like Web3 was coined the term and so on. So I do wonder like if if there's a world in which uh, Web3 technology gets adopted pretty widely by traditional businesses, then our sort of hybrid approach of using trusted execution environments as opposed to using like full decentralization. I think I'm still very confident about uh, using trusted execution environments as a sort of stepping stone towards the full trustless approach because it gives us optionality where like right now we know that this is like more than good enough for basically um, all types of customers. But if something does start to take off and it, it becomes clear that like, oh, every company in the future will be built on Ethereum or something, then we'll have robust enough foundations that we can just start to explore that as a company and just have two people or three people within the company just explore it and spike out what a potential project might look like. But yeah, from a tech perspective, like we follow things like uh, fully homomorphic encryption very closely where you can basically encrypt data and manipulate the encrypted data without decrypting it, um, which is wonderful technology. It's just very impractical at scale and for large data sets because it's super slow. But I think there is a world in which that tech becomes way more accessible, way more practical for production use cases. And we want to be the first company to make it accessible and easily usable by, by customers. Developers. Is there something that you do culturally to keep people on the cutting edge? Is it just who you hire? Like the people who are just the most curious and passionate about this stuff. I noticed on the website, you have this like beautiful section of all kind of the foundational papers in the field. What do you do to have that kind of constant curiosity and push within the company? It's definitely partially related to the people that you hire, but I think if, as long as you're hiring people who are like very good and not necessarily like world-class, there's a few just small cultural things that you can do to make that just part of how you operate day to day. Papers, like you mentioned, there was no rational reason for doing it. It just means that you know, now on our website, there's this sort of symbolic manifestation of all of the sort of important works that have happened in, uh, in cryptography over the last, I guess, 100 years. I think the oldest paper that we have on there is the early, early 20th century, or maybe even, even before that. Once you sort of set that cultural precedent, it becomes acceptable for people to come in and say like, hey, did you read this paper? So you want to find these people that are this weird mixture or balance between extremely academic, but also extremely pragmatic as well. And that's rare, but I think everybody is sort of academic by nature because most people have gone to school or college or whatever. So they're kind of used to a world in which these discussions are normal. And if you can kind of help them carry that on, but in a company where they're actually doing real work that matters, then yeah, the kind of lunch table conversations around new tech and, and crypto kind of make sense. But you definitely need two or three culture carriers that kind of set that standard as well. If there's just kind of one person who's obsessed about it, it's pretty hard to do. I think within the founding team, a lot of things that you don't intentionally think about or um, sort of cultural quirks that end up being invented by accident, those things carry on a lot longer than I had ever them, expected them to. And even small things like people pick up on writing styles. Now, every time somebody writes an email within the company, it's this weird amalgamation of the writing styles of kind of like the first three people that joined the company or something, which is both scary and um, also extremely interesting sociologically as well. We talked a lot about the long term, but like, what are the next six months hold for the company? If people are listening, how do they come in and try Evervault? Like what else can they do to help the company? What are you focused on right now? Yeah. So I think that the biggest kind of blurry part of the company right now is just this sort of distinction between the self-serve approach that I described and then kind of the sales-led approach that I, that I described. And they're kind of the one thing now. So um, I think both internally and externally having like very clear boundaries where you know, somebody somebody within Evervault is responsible for creating great developer documentation that a one or two person startup will use and make the product compelling enough for them. Then also just sort of have a reasonably well-oiled machine on the B2B go-to-market side. So that's what I'm spending a lot of time on um, these days because it's, you know, most companies are either one or the other. You look at a company like Slack and they just have this massive kind of tailwind bottom-up growth, but 
security is kind of tricky because like everybody, everybody cares about security, but it's always priority two or three or something. And they might say it's priority one, but when you ask them to actually integrate a product, it's, it's always after a feature that a customer has asked them to implement or something. So I think just, just getting that right is, is a little bit more tricky for a company like ours. I think for us to win, we really need to make sure that Evervault is sort of, is the gold standard. Is there just a price that people are willing to pay? Like, and that's maybe part of this, the secret of this business where like, if you can just take care of privacy and security for me, like take whatever you want. I just can't spend the internal kind of time and resources on it. How big is the Delta, I guess, between how much people say they care about privacy and, and what they're actually kind of willing to either do or pay? I think it's not huge. Leadership and company generally always cares because basically every founder has an experience where they've lost out in a deal to a larger competitor because they didn't have like a SOC 2 certification or something. So like they kind of know that pain. Interestingly, we're, see- we're seeing it in like kind of high growth markets. If you look at places like Africa or Latin, or Latin and South America, companies there seem to care way more about security and privacy than their US or, or European counterparts do, uh, as particularly US, because obviously Europe has the kind of cultural GDPR stuff that, that sort of led to this whole industry, I guess. I think it's not huge. And it, it's not necessarily a price thing because they'll always ask their head of, you know, a CEO will always ask their head of engineering, like, hey, can we implement this? It's just that it's, you know, it's added into like a, a sprint plan or like a linear ticket or something. And uh, it kind of gets done, but six months down the line. And it's just that it's never, it's never this week's priority. It's always like next week's priority. So, interestingly on pricing, one thing that we discovered is that if you actually charge people a little bit more, they take the product more seriously and perceive more value from it, which um, like intuitively doesn't make sense, but it also does as well because once people are paying like a sum of money that is like not insignificant to them, they just think that it's a, a higher quality product and they just have more urgency to integrate it. Not necessarily because of the financial cost, but because they're like, oh, this is a really valuable thing that like we have the opportunity to integrate as opposed to like, damn, we're paying these guys like crazy amounts of money. Like would they just kind of get this over with? So where can people find you and where can people find Evervault? We'll wrap it up there. So Evervault is on evervault.com. Anybody can sign up, create an account and play around there. And then if you want to talk to somebody, there's you know, intercom pop-ups and email addresses everywhere to be found. We'd love to have people do that. I am easiest found on Twitter. Uh, my handle is rkurn. That's A-R-C-U-R-N. Email address as well, shane at evervault.com. Putting the email address in the podcast. I love it. Everybody go email, email Shane. Shane, thank you so much for, for talking to me, working with me on this piece. I'm excited to, uh, hopefully everybody who's listening has read it by now. Um, but yeah, go check out Evervault. I think this is one of the coolest things uh, out there. And hopefully in a decade when we have this conversation, the whole internet will be encrypted and there's no more data breaches. Thanks so much, Paki. 